The year today's album was released, the assembly lines went dark at Oldsmobile as GM shuttered the 100-year-old brand. Pixar's The Incredibles was a smash hit, and Indiana Pacer Ron met a world peace artist, punched a fan in the face at a game. And Ken Jennings? Well, he finally lost after a 74-game winning streak on Jeopardy. The artist who recorded this album was already crowned the king of country when he released it. He's only solidified his position since then. The year was 2004, the album was 50 number ones, and the artist was the king himself, George Strait, today on Two Dudes and Tunes. Oh, hey there. I didn't see you come in. Welcome to Two Dudes and Tunes, our little project aimed at talking about the music that has impacted us over the years. My name is Wood Johnson. I'm one of the dudes. And just like every other week on this podcast, I'm joined by the other dude, the man with the magic, Chris Robinson. How's it going, Chris? Uh, it's uh, it's going good. I could have used some of that magic this week. Uh, I spent most of this week as two-thirds of the three wise monkeys, you know, the like, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sunday, I was uh, I was cleaning my ears. And, you know, for everybody listening, don't do this. Don't use Q-tips. Q-tips are bad news. Um, I got, <laughs> this is so gross, I got earwax kind of like lodged in my left ear and couldn't hear anything out of it. It was like super muffled. Do you know something? You disgust me. I don't know what people like you get up to and I think it's disgusting. And so I spent most of Monday like half deaf. <laughs> I, I, I was real like, it's so disorienting. You don't realize how disorienting it's going to be to lose like half capacity on your hearing. But anyway, I got to a clinic and they clean out my ear and I learned that your ear canal can hold an alarming amount of water, mm-hmm. <laughs> like so much water. <laughs> Cause they have that, you, you know, I mean, you, you've done nursing stuff. So you, I'm sure you've done this with the like squeegee bottle that has yep. the like, so I got that done and I was like, okay, I'm good. And then yesterday I was trucking along at work. And for those who don't know, uh, I don't remember if we've mentioned it or not, but I work at a lumber yard. So there's a lot of sawdust everywhere. And some products have more sawdust like from jump than others. And so this big cloud of sawdust puffed up while I was working with this material. And some of it got in my eye, which is not that unusual, except for it was worse than I like realized because I just kind of rubbed my eye and went along, you know, I got home and sometime after dinner, I think I was, it was probably, it it would have to be after dinner because I was sitting there playing video games, you know, which is a thing you use your eye for. And my right eye just started. Yeah. But well, I would have liked to have been using both eyes. I said, I, but my right eye was just killing me. And so I tried to rub it to get it like cleared out, which is another no, no. This is basically Chris's like life examples of what not to do (laughs) to yourself. Yeah. Okay. I did that rookie mistake, but my eye just got super irritated and I think it like 
messed with some of the nerves like in my nose too because my nose started running really bad yeah and so i just i've got like a bloodshot eye and i'm like trying to blow my nose i got in the shower to try and like rinse my eye out and it just nothing would help and so i took uh some benadryl thinking like well maybe this is just like some weird allergic reaction to the sawdust i woke up this morning and i was still just like in misery like I, uh, turning on the bathroom light was just like blindingly painful so i had to call my boss and tell him like hey I'd have to go to an optometrist yeah. <laughs> and get them. And and thankfully the lady like looked around in my eye and picked out whatever it was that was like causing me issues. But man, I, I'm falling apart. I'm 31 and I'm falling apart is what I'm trying to say. Hey, I know the feeling. Uh, it has been just crazy here on, on our end as well. Uh, I've been working throughout the week kind of in my free time to, get the backlog of this show edited and I managed to knock out three episodes this week. So I'm pretty proud of that. Um, you know, and yeah, you've been cooking along. I've been trying to, I had fallen behind with all the traveling I was doing the last couple of weeks. So I had five or six episodes to get through. Uh, but last week, you know, we talked about how cold it had been and it was uh, another birthday for me last week and we were frozen in at the house. So, uh, our ability to celebrate was pretty limited. And so over the weekend, uh, my parents watched our, our son and we went out and both did a combined like Valentine's day and my birthday, uh, kind of day. And we drove up to, Oh, that sounds great. It was awesome. It was kind of nice to just get to spend some time together and do a little bit of nothing. But, you know, we drove up to Fredericksburg, uh, which is about 60 miles away from us. And, uh, there's a couple of breweries that I really like up there. And, Heck um, yeah. and my wife loves wineries. So we uh, went to both breweries and they were both closed because of the storm and had no water oh. or no electricity. And so it was kind of looking like it was going to be a bust. Oh no. And uh, we were driving back kind of the long way and we passed this blue barn that we've passed probably five or six times in the last couple of years. And just every time we drive by it, Oh, we'll stop there next time we drive uh-huh. by. And never do because yeah. it's in kind of the middle of nowhere, but on the, yeah. the front sign of the building is Andalusia whiskey. And so uh, this time around, cool. we turned around the car when the second brewery was closed and went back to Andalusia uh, distilling. And uh, I fell in love with a brand new uh, a whiskey uh, from Blanco, Texas called Striker. Oh, fantastic. And so uh, I'm drinking from one of their glasses and I'm drinking it from one of their glasses tonight. Uh, while we oh, record this episode, great. so uh, not a sponsor, unfortunately, they are more than welcome to sponsor us anytime they want, uh, because this is truly world world class. Yes, yes, absolutely. I am down for whiskey sponsor. It probably would be terrible for my liver. What do you mean, booze ain't food? Um, and the the coherence of my words might go down even more than <laughs> it already tends to. Uh, uh, but if y'all are listening. We're here and we're interested. Well, hey, man, uh, before we get into the podcast today, let's uh, let's do the little thing that we've got to do uh, every week uh, just because. Yes. If you listen to podcasts often, there's always that moment where they stop the show and pretty much beg you to like, rate, subscribe or share the show. Well, we do it on Two Dudes and Tunes Tunes, so buckle up. 
Your support and feedback are essential to us growing our show and getting the word out. Please take a moment and give us a rating. Uh, And as reviews start coming in, Chris and I will commit to reading every one of them in an effort to make the show better for you. And uh, if you'd like to contact us about anything we've said on the pod, please, please, please send us an email at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and uh, we're at at two dudes and tunes. Uh, we try and post pictures of album art, uh, maybe memes that are kind of cracking us up or anything else that just kind of comes across our radar that we think y'all might like. So, uh, Go ahead over to Instagram and give us a follow. All righty, Chris. Let's get into the album. Uh, 50 Number Ones released on October 5th, 2004 by George Strait. Uh, It's a 50-song compilation album. No surprise there, I guess, based on its title. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's... It is exactly what it purports to be. (laughs) Absolutely zero. uh, Oh, what do you call that? Like uh, false advertising. Yeah, Yeah. no false advertising. Well, sort of, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, (laughs) So the figure 50 number ones, uh, they got that uh, because they took the number one rating uh, from different charts, including billboards, hot country songs, radio and records, and then the now defunct Gavin report charts, which was big in the seventies and eighties. Oh, so they had to, they had to pull from different sources just to get, to get 50 quote unquote number ones. Is that what you're telling me? Kind of. And that's, that's kind of a caveat to this album. As of today, uh, February 25th, uh, 2021, when we record this, uh, George Strait actually has 50, number one billboard hot country songs. Oh, but all totaled all totaled when this album was released or today, he has 60 total number ones based on the different lists. Wow. So man, dude is a heavy hitter. Like regardless of what we might feel about this album or I might feel about country music in general, the guy knows how to write a song. That is crazy. (laughs) Well, so Before I ask you about how you did with this album this week, I'm going to admit that I underestimated how daunting this album would be. Um, It's a lot of material, a lot of content. It's 158 minutes long, so two and a half, three hours almost, uh, if you don't take any breaks. Uh, And I know from your and my relationship over the years, uh, country music is not your thing, uh, and especially (laughs) radio-friendly country is not your thing. And uh, I kind of think after listening to this album the first time last Friday, that maybe this may not have been my best choice of an album to include. And I'm going to, I'm going to defend that by saying I really, really like George Strait and I like just about every album he's ever released. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I did not expect the 50 number ones to be so monotone in their theme and kind of their (laughs) messaging. Um, yeah, the albums themselves have a little bit more dynamic range. And uh, that was kind of disappointing to me because I threw this album on there, having not listened to it since it came out, thinking that it was going to be a great introduction to, hey, this is George Strait, man. Listen to it. So first, I'm going to apologize. And then we're going to talk about the hits. <laughs> well, I don't I don't think honestly, I don't think you need to apologize. I was thinking about it uh, today and 
there were a couple of compilations that I considered putting on our list. Uh, the main one being Led Zeppelin's early days and latter days. I had that like big chunky double mm-hmm. disc jewel case that I would carry around with me all the time in high school. Um, but you know, compilations can be really handy. Uh, one of the first CDs my guitar teacher ever told me to go out and get was the Beatles number one. Um, you know, it's that like red album one, cover. Beatles got, one. Yeah. Yeah. Beatles one. <laughs> it could not have been closer to the tip of my <laughs> tongue. and so obvious. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think it's like, I wasn't really too baffled by you putting that on there. And I, I didn't really think, I don't know if you're going to check out a, a new artist for the first time, sometimes a compilation can help you get there. You know what I mean? Especially when their career started in 1975. Yeah. He's been, he's been working for a while. Yeah. So, uh, so tell me, Chris, uh, <laughs> How did you approach a 50 song album, uh, compilation based on an artist that you'd never really listened to? Um, so I approached it, you know, that old, old, uh, trite aphorism. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Uh, I decided, and I don't know where this idea, uh, came to me probably out of the pits of desperation and having to listen to 50 radio country hits. <laughs> but, um, I thought I'll, I'll break this album down into 10 song chunks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which gives me, you know, there'll be, there were some days this week where I listened to two 10 song chunks, right? But, uh, and just kind of listen to them all once, mm-hmm. let them kind of marinate. And then in the mornings, what I would do is I would get up and while I was eating breakfast or whatever, I set up this Excel spreadsheet and I would rate each song. Uh, based on kind of three criteria, I give it three numerical values. So you have your song and I would ask myself the question, do I like it? And in the next like column in the spreadsheet, I would put a one for yes and a zero for no. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then I have a possible 50 points to gauge. Do I like this album as a whole based on how I felt about the songs? And then I kind of thought, well, I ought to try and assess the quality of it, right? Which I'm not the end-all, be-all authority on anything. We're just going on my opinion. But I I tried to assess each song based on, like, did I think the lyrics were good or bad? Was it super repetitive? Were the melodies cloying or did I like them? Did they get stuck in my head? So I gave it the same sort of rating. Is this a good song? One being yes, uh, zero being no. And so then in the last column, I added those two values together. So basically what we have is two 50-point scales or 51 because mm-hmm. there were technically 51 tracks on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure why. We'll uh, talk about that probably in Fifty-one number ones probably didn't roll off the tongue, but anyway, two two fifty-point scales and then one a hundred and two-point scales, and so I just kind of worked through the album. I would get get home and kind of let the the songs, the ten or twenty songs I listened to, percolate, and added everything up. Got a percentage point for all those um, all those like bits of data. 
and kind of came to some interesting conclusions. Do we want to talk about those now or kind of save I, it for? No, I want to hear about end. your results. Do you I want to hear about your results right now. Let's, let's get into it. Okay. Um, so in the, in the category of, did I like this song? Only 17 out of the 51 songs did I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and today I went through the ritual of deleting every other song <laughs> on my phone so that I would have the songs I liked. So that works out to being like 33.3 repeating percent. Mm-hmm. So I really only liked a third of the album. Um, as far as the songs uh, quality, did I think they were good or not? I wound up rating 35 of these songs as good songs, which that bumps up to like a little over two thirds, 68.63%, according to Google spreadsheet Mm -hmm. anyway. um, And so the last, uh, I don't even know if the last criteria or like way that I gauged this album, I don't know how much sense it made because they both, I'm, I'm realizing now they're both my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's just that in one respect, I tried to give songs that I didn't necessarily like. Some, you weight. know, I tried to give them. Yeah, exactly. Give them some weight. So uh, overall, as far as points goes, there was 52 out of 102 total points like awarded. So that's like, 50 percent thereabouts. So I don't really know exactly what that means. I guess I guess if we're going based on like how I felt about it, it means that half the album was good and half of it was kind of subpar music making. Mm-hmm. I felt. Um, well, I think that's a fair assessment. Honestly, I mean, I'll admit that there are quite a few songs on this album that are not necessarily my favorites. Um, They might be good technical tunes or whatever, but they're not necessarily the kind of thing that really gets my engine running at the end of the day. Um, And so, you know, when you look at any other groups compilations, I think this might be an interesting method to take when we think about, you know, if we ever do the Beatles one, I don't believe that album is on our list. Um, yeah, but I don't some think of, it is. Some of those bigger compilation albums, you know, it'd be interesting to take this method and revisit um, The Wall, for instance, and see what kind yeah, of score that yeah. album ends up getting um, to kind of feed into uh, our opinions of it. But I can think of most compilations that I listen to that maybe a good portion of it I don't necessarily like. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that's a fair assessment. And I'd probably say, just off the top of my head, there's probably, I'd give this a significantly better score, but it wouldn't be anywhere near 102 possible points. It would probably be somewhere in the the upper 70s for me, uh, kind of yeah. based on that methodology, which is still a lot of stuff that could be cut in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing that I found helpful was mainly that it forced me to really think about what I liked about a song Mm -hmm. and what I didn't and make a hard and fast decision because what I didn't want to happen was for me to listen to all these songs and get overwhelmed and go like, well, I don't know. There are just so many songs, you know, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that, um, 
this week, uh, just playing my random playlist, um, I have been pretty critical of a couple of songs we've listened to recently. And one of those songs that I was critical to was uh, Shame Shame by uh, the Foo Fighters on their new album that just came out. And I heard that song in the context of a Dodge commercial the other day. And oh, yeah, it was actually really good with the Dodge commercial. They were using or not Dodge uh, Ram trucks, and they are using that song yeah. to promote the fact that they've won Motor Trend Truck of the Year for three years in a row. And so they're playing That's it like funny. it's shame on Ford and shame on Chevy because it's the uh, first time <laughs> it's the first time any manufacturers run it three years in a row. It generally ping pongs around. And so uh, their commercials, you know, they cut to the interior of the truck and there's this beautiful album art from medicine at midnight and shame, shame's song title there. And the music's playing. It's like, that's actually pretty good. Like, and yeah. so I, I listened to the song again the other day and was just like, this is actually pretty decent. So it just kind of says, you know, music is subjective to the experience you're having at the moment. So, you know, even though throwing data at, uh, an album like this, maybe your experience, if you experience some of those songs you didn't like in a different light, maybe you would have a different opinion of them. Um, I think that's, that's definitely, I mean, I can think of music that sticks with me more for the experience mm-hmm. that I had with it. Like, okay. We talked about a few episodes ago, or maybe it was last episode. I don't remember. Um, we talked about the movie pineapple express and, mm-hmm. And the way they promoted that that song uh, was with or that movie, excuse me, was the song "Paper Planes" mm-hmm. by um, M.I.A. Mm-hmm. And I love that song. It's not it's not an amazing song or anything. Like it's fun, but I think of high school and I think of going with my hood rat friends to go see a stoner comedy in theaters. You know, and so that song was really helped out. Like if I had heard it just by itself, I would have been like, huh, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I think of James Franco and Seth Rogen (laughs) selling pot to teenagers or whatever they did (laughs) in that movie, you know, like so that the context helps that song out, you know. Well, to that point, going back to George Strait here for a moment, I think Mm -hmm. my context for liking his music is it's very similar to the kind of music that I was used to hearing in kind of the dive bar dance halls that kind of my family liked hanging out at the, the green dance hall, the, the, you know, the different dance halls in Fredericksburg, like Hondo's on main and, you know, just a bunch of guys in their forties up there playing old school country music. And here's this guy on the radio, George Strait, who's playing that kind of music. Like, there isn't a song on that album, on this compilation, that could not be played in some acoustic setting in the back lot of some restaurant and not be done well. Yeah, I I had a similar kind of thought. I haven't had the experience in dance halls that you have, but um, his music is kind of like Bob Dylan's in that the songwriting and structures are so there that it's accessible to a lot of people. You know, Mm -hmm. it has that kind of mass appeal. Like the first thing I thought of was country bands in dance halls, being able to hear like solid tunes with 
pretty strong melodies and choruses and pretty like danceable. Well, like, I was about to say they're all either waltzes or, or two steps or some sort of line yeah. dance. Like everything is yeah. very set. Mm-hmm. And so that I, I can see that being a barrier of entry for me personally, just cause I didn't grow up going to dance halls or doing any like country dancing mm-hmm. or what have you, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's funny. I, I thought of the same thing that you experienced that I hadn't, that I felt like that probably helps it out a little bit. So that kind of corroborates that it does. Cause you, you grew up on this stuff, you know? Well, yeah, and I, I pretty much grew up on George Strait music. Um, I made a joke to you in text earlier this week about how my mom pretty much worships the sawdust his Lucchese's walk on. <laughs> so uh, That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, family. You can't, can't, you cannot deny the influence of family exactly. in a situation like this. That's so funny. Yeah, my dad, uh, heavy rock and roll, really cool music tastes, and my mom is very much radio country, so... Uh, I grew up kind of Uh, with a mix of both and have a, I think a fairly healthy appreciation for both, but anyhow, so let's talk a little bit about George Strait himself. There's really not a whole lot of notes to talk about in regards to this album, other than the fact that most of the songs were remastered for release in 2004. And I don't want to just pick apart each individual song because that would take us weeks um, oh Lord! <laughs> but, but kind of thinking about the career that is or has been had by George Strait over the years, uh, he was born in Poteet, Texas. Um, he's 68 years old at the moment. Uh, and when he was in the fourth grade, his parents were divorced and he ended up living with his brother and his dad as a result of that in Pearsall, Texas. And the reason I say those names is kind of to give the idea that um, his entire like big sphere of life has kind of existed within about a hundred mile radius of the San Antonio area. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, he went to high school in Pearsall uh, and that's when he got involved with music uh, early on. Uh, his favorite band was the Beatles. Cause you know, it's the late sixties, early seventies. Everybody's going to love the Beatles. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But he too kind of did the whole dance hall thing. His dad was uh, um, a farmer, I believe, or worked in the the agriculture industry, and uh, so his musical preference soon to turn to turn to country music uh, singers like Hank Thompson, Lefty Frizzle, Merle Haggard. Who, if you haven't spent much time listening to uh, Merle Haggard, you've got to listen to some of his stuff. He's amazing. Oh, I love Merle Haggard. Uh, okay, yeah, cool. I'm all there for that. <laughs> George Jones, Bob Wills, Hank Williams, and finally, and this was one of my favorite musical influences because I've never thought of it, but the second I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. He loves, to this day, Frank Sinatra. Oh, it makes total sense. He really, he's he's kind he's, of the Frank Sinatra of the South. He's he, definitely he's country Frank Sinatra. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Man, it, that's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, in 1971, he joined the army as an infantryman because he was looking for something to do with life. Served four years, uh, stationed in Hawaii, uh, which we joked was basically like being an officer anywhere else in the country. Yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> it'd, it'd be great to like dig trenches if you're in Hawaii. <laughs> but during that time, he performed in a band called Rambling Country. And they did a bunch of stuff on bass and off of bass. And he really kind of honed his musical talent. Um, 
He was honorably discharged as the rank of a corporal, and he went to uh, Southwest Texas State, which is now Texas State University, to get a degree in agriculture science. And it was while he was there that uh, a band uh, called um, Stony Ridge was looking for a new lead vocalist. Their lead vocalist had graduated the, that year in, in uh, 1975. And George picked up a, uh, a copy of their flyer, walked in, auditioned, and got the part. That is fantastic. I, I have to say, though, I do not like the band name change. Because Stony Ridge is cool. So and so with him as their front man, they changed the name from Stony Ridge to the Ace and the Hole Band. And Yeah, I just don't uh, I don't know. That that clangs for me. How do what do you think of it? So I grew up with George Strait. And yeah. we'll talk about this here in a minute, I guess. Or let's talk about it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He landed a deal with MCA in nineteen eighty one. And he brought the ace and the whole band with him. And so here we are, the year's 2021. The band, the ace and the whole, has toured with him on every tour he's ever been on. No you're kidding. Hearing, you're hearing the original band for the most part. It's seven or eight of the original guys. And they've had a few others rotate in and out. But the same steel guitarist and the same bassist have played with him his entire career. You know... That surprises me because one of the things I noticed listening to the album was that the style definitely changes. He gets more like quote unquote modern, mm-hmm. you know, more of the like pop country sound. Cause it starts off and it's real, real pretty simple standard country, right? Acoustic fiddle. Like a lot of it mm-hmm. is Western swing, you mm-hmm. know? But then it kind of moves on to like some more complex instrumentation and stuff. That's interesting. And he went the whole career with those same guys. And that kind of leads me to kind of rewinding the a little bit. In 1980, he threatened to retire from country music. He hadn't gotten anywhere, really. He and the Ace and the Hole Band had been kind of playing honky-tonks and bars for about five years at that point. And he got married in 1971 uh, before he even went to college. And his wife in 1980 told him, play for one more year and try to land a deal for one more year. And he had an offer to go work for a company called AgPro designing bullpens. And so he was getting ready to go do that and become a bullpen designer when his wife said, nah, you need to do one more year. And uh, about a month later, he landed a one-song deal with MCA in Nashville on the deal that if the song did okay, they would sign him to something else. That is incredible. Well, and his first single peaked at number six. So here's this unknown, brand-new solo act, never been heard of, and it made it to number six. And uh, the rest is history. Uh, And he could have been toiling away in ignominy designing bullpens for people man good for his wife yeah for pushing them that's crazy and that's something you know looking at you know his his wife looking at his band the ace and the whole band and looking at mca he's been with the three of those his entire career um he never got into some crazy relationships he never divorced his wife he stayed with the same record label the entire career. He's still releasing releasing music with MCA. 
and he still plays and tours with the Ace and the Hole band. So the guy has something to be said about loyalty kind of in his character and his actions over the years. Uh, more Absolutely. Than, more than some that, of the rockers we've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> and more than some of the people we will talk about, I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, I may not be like a huge George Strait fan or what have you, but it's really admirable that he stuck with that band because for a lot of singer-songwriter types, you know, you te- they tend to view themselves as like... I'm the substance of my act. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't really matter who I play with or whatever, as long as my songs get out. Not that that's a bad thing, um, but it's how you treat people in that whole process. And so it's neat to me that as much skill as he has as a songwriter and a singer, he didn't think so much of himself to try and go after like a top flight bunch of nashville musicians or what have you you know that is really admirable well and i think part of what makes him he's a very private person so he's been a resident of san antonio for a long time and i live in san antonio for those of you who hadn't picked up on that and uh i actually i've seen him in public one time uh, at a whataburger at about midnight uh after (laughs) after a concert in san antonio at the alamo dome um, he walked what in, in a baseball cap. What else is there to do when you finish your work? You gotta go get Whataburger. Exactly. But Even <laughs> the king has to go get Whataburger. Exactly. Right across the street from the stadium, too. It was crazy. So here's the clincher, though. Do you remember what he ordered, or I, did you just see him? I just saw him. I wasn't. Uh, I was too like shell shocked. And he's, you know, but he's well known as being a very private individual. One of the things that didn't make the show doc, but I thought was just an interesting, odd coincidence. He built a house in one of San Antonio's exclusive neighborhoods in the 1990s. And he's lived there as his primary residence ever since the mid 1990s. And this week that house went for sale. Um, Just after we decided to do this album, the house was listed for sale. And uh, it's funny. Kind of sent a ripple through the city, but He's historically known as being an incredibly private person with a very tight circle of friends. And I think part of that is what explains keeping the same band. It's what he knows. Mm -hmm. He's comfortable with them. And there's a lot of trust that they won't steer him the wrong way or lead him the wrong way. Part of me wonders if the instability that a lot of famous musicians have faced. I mean, there's no way to just look at every musician and go like, it's this one thing, but if artists put more stock in, I don't even know how to say it exactly. There is something to be said for the consistency of that above and beyond any ambition you might have. Mm Mm-hmm. That loyalty seems like it has produced its own rewards in his life. He's not hurting for cash. Mm-mm. You know, he might eat at Whataburger, but he's not hurting for cash. Yeah. Um, and I have to feel like that's because he didn't put any of his trust or I don't want to say faith, but he didn't he didn't go casting about for like, oh, maybe this person is what's going to get me. Yeah. This is how I'm going to keep it alive. Keep the yeah, routine. exactly. I, I would be real interested because I I think you and I have talked about um, 
or you've told me about Billy Joel and all the travails that he's had with managers mm-hmm. and wives, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I, I would be very interested to sit down and like compare and contrast, you know, like two really big singers who have a lot of success, you know, George Strait sounds like has had a lot of stability and Billy Joel certainly hasn't now, just to pick somebody who I've thought of, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm curious if that's, uh, that has to be a, a factor. Definitely for sure. And, uh, you know, that stability definitely led him to a pretty big resume. Um, I put a whole bunch of stats and facts in here for you to read off if you want, just to yeah, let it yeah, sink absolutely. in, uh, but um, go for it. Yeah. It, so it, I, you know, growing up, spending a lot of time as I have in Texas country is ubiquitous. And so you just kind of think like, Oh yeah, he's big here. But like outside of Texas, how big could country possibly be? No, he's sold more than a hundred and million albums worldwide. Um, 13 multi-platinum 33 platinum and 38 gold albums. Uh, his best-selling album is Pure Country, released in 1992, which sold 6 million copies, which is six times platinum. Um, Straight Out of the Box is his highest certified album, uh, sold 2 million copies, eight times platinum due to being a box set with four CDs. Um, he has had a song on the Billboard Country Top 10 for 30 years in a row. If that is not success, I don't know what <laughs> is. Like I, I will probably wind up knocking his music a little bit because it's not my bag, but it's not because he can't do what he does, you know. And he holds the record for largest indoor concert in history with more than a oh, hundred about that. More than a hundred and four million people. <laughs> The whole country showed up, folks. 104,000 people in attendance at AT&T Stadium in 2014 at his Cowboy Rides Away tour. You know what? Verbal typo aside, 104,000 people in one place to hear your music. Indoors. Yeah, that has to be... Like it, it is amazing that he's not just a big headed jerk, you know, because man, that's a lot of money and a lot of attention. His touring has made more than $150 million. I read somewhere in the last 20 years. So just in the last 20 years of his touring career, and he hasn't toured for real in the last uh, seven or eight years, but $150 million in that time, man. That's incredible. That's it, well, he is kind of getting up to retirement age. So what, so what is he just like making albums now or what? What is he up to? So officially he ended his touring career in 2014 with this Cowboy Rides Away tour that oh, ended right. at that AT&T Stadium. Yeah. Um, he still does shows and performances here and there. Uh, and then he's released a few singles. But to my knowledge, you know, he's not doing a whole lot in the album space. Um, yeah. The the albums that came after this 50 number ones are some of his most influential albums, which is kind of funny to me. Um, There were a Mm -hmm. couple of songs that I was expecting to see on this list and didn't realize they came out after 2004 to be like, Oh "Oh, shoot. Like this isn't on this Uh album. This isn't on this album. 
Um, but yeah. that's just a testament to who he is and has been since, you know, you'd think I have 50 number one songs. This is good. No, he released another several albums and has gotten that up to 60 number one songs uh, since then. And if we look in terms of the Billboard charts, um, uh, he is the 11th most number one albums of all genres uh, and is only third all time to Elvis Presley and the Beatles with the most golden platinum albums in the history of music. Woof. <laughs> wow. Elvis and the Beatles. Yeah. That's, I would be very curious to know what countries outside of the United States and Canada sell a lot of George Strait albums, you know? I would too. And I wasn't really readily able to tell that. Um, but one of the last things I wanted to talk about in terms of like his career, he has more number one hits than anybody else in the history of music. And he beat the the previous holder of that record, which happens to be another country guy, Conway Twitty, uh, who held it at 40 for a long time. Huh. So there's, it's there's very, something to be said. It's very telling to me that it's country music that sells uh, or makes as many number one hits. Um, you know, that is such fans of country are rarely ever lukewarm. Like I'm probably in the minority of people who's like, yeah, I like some country, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like that market, like the people who make that kind of music have really nailed the formula and know like, these are the boxes we need to tick off in order to get a number one hit. Hold it there, Sonny. There's two kinds of music in this world, country and Western. <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. That is the prevailing wisdom. Um, I don't know. And and so I part of, you know, the like um, the snide and uh, kind of jaded part of me is like, well, it's not really that good, you know, because it's just they're catering to a market. But I listening to this album, I did feel like the songwriting was really strong. Like, and you can hear his influences, you know, as far as really great melodies and great chord progressions. It's very much like the Beatles do Texas. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, Frank Sinatra singing the songs of Hank Williams or what have you. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It, 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 it's kind of, it's interesting to me, I guess. Well, and let's, let's skip ahead. Uh, We generally would have a lot to talk about as far as critical reception, but because this is all the number ones, there isn't a whole lot of critical reception to talk about other than the numbers. Uh, Mm -hmm. This album went seven times multi-platinum. So people were buying George Strait's hits and uh, it sold more than 5.5 million copies over the uh, the course of its release up to today. So also considered a very big smashing success of music that, for the most part, people had already heard. Well, Chris, I think we've pretty much talked as much as we can talk about the album and kind of its content. Let's Let's go ahead and talk about our reviews for it. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. So as a quick reminder for our rating system, we do a one to six guitar string rating system. One string being absolutely terrible. Get that guy off the stage. He sucks. 
and six guitar strings being Chris Robinson on guitar. Just phenomenal. What was your verdict, Chris? Oh, man, thank you. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for that very undeserved compliment. Um, So it would be easy for me to look at my, like, you know, shoot from the hip analysis of this. You know, I just tried to slap a bunch of numbers on this thing to understand how I felt about it. Um, and I could just write it off, right? Like, oh, well, look at that. I only liked a third of the songs and only just under 70% of them I thought were good. But I don't think that would be fair. Uh, so I have kind of three conclusions that um, I drew from listening to this album. The first one is, I don't really like pop country or radio friendly country, the songs, the arrangements and like the like Southern radio accent, like country radio accent that people sing in aren't my bag. I didn't grow up listening to it the way you did. And that kind of leads me to my second point. I'm not the target audience, which is why I kind of feel a little reluctant to be like, well, this is, stupid i hate blah 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 you know um because this music is informed by a set of cultural values and norms like that i grew up with some of those right like my family Mm -hmm. is from texas i spent a lot of time in texas spent a fair amount of time in kansas which is also like you know it's the midwest it's about as country music central as you can get as far as parts of the nation to live um and so that kind of means that not all of it is going to stick with me. There were some of these songs that I liked. I liked 17 of them and I kept all 17 of those songs on my phone because it's fun. You know, his music, I think when it's not being a little too like serious and like maudlin, you know, with some of his like big ballads or whatever, is a lot of fun. Like you can definitely tell that he is doing the thing that he loves and that's it. You know, uh, and that kind of leads me to my third, like thing that I look kind of solidified for me. I like some country music, just not a lot of it, you know, not everything is for everyone. Um, and another thing I kind of hinted at earlier in our conversation is I really do like some Western swing, um, there's a group that performs at a place in um, in New Mexico, and I feel terrible because I can't remember the name of the town, but it's the Flying J Ranch. And they play, you know, they have like a hokey little like gunfight out in like a fake town. And then you come in and you sit down and you have a, uh, a, a, like pioneer dinner basically where they make you barbecue and beans and stuff like that. And they have a band that plays and they always play Western swing and that stuff I really love because it's a little bit farther from modern country music, but all that to say there are a lot of elements of that in George Strait's music. And those were the songs that I liked were the kind of more old school Western swing oriented tunes. Um, so as far as where that leaves George Strait and his 50 number ones, I don't think it's for me. So my rating might seem kind of low, but 
it's also just me trying to acknowledge that it's good, but it's not my thing. And so I gave it three out of six strings because I really enjoyed some of it. You know, I like some country music, but a lot of it felt a little like cheesy. You know, he does a lot of ballads. Like you're talking about Frank Sinatra. The guy has like, I wouldn't be surprised if two thirds of this album were ballads. And that's why I only liked a third of them. <laughs> Cause I liked the third that wasn't ballads. Uh, but anyway, that that's my rating three out of six strings. How did you feel about this? Cause George Strait is your boy. Well, and so I want to start by saying, I don't think, that George Strait is emblematic of radio country. Uh, I think mm. George Strait is an enigma to country music as a whole in the radio friendly, radio pop kind of country music. The one album I feel he was the closest to being the pop country is his pure country album, which is kind of funny that that's his biggest success as an album. Um, mm. But the majority of his album or his albums and music, I feel are more of, the the traditional old school honky tonk uh, country. And so with that kind mm. of in mind, I wrote this as my review. It takes me back to my youth. Uh, my family loves this kind of country music. And for a time in junior high, I think my favorite album hands down was Pure Country, uh, which happened to also be the acting debut of George Strait in a kind of a failed movie career crossover. <laughs> um this album, I think, is more of a view of what traditional George Strait is. It's not that radio friendly. And I think by making you listen to 50 of his hits, I may have miscast him a little bit as a ballad guy. Because those mm. are the kinds of songs that made it so big in kind of the Friday night at the at the Green Dance Hall, uh, where people can dance to him really easily and slow dance to a ballad. Um, he kind of turns him into this album kind of turns him into a paint by the numbers kind of guy. And I think that kind of ended up disappointing me too, a little bit. I really mm -hmm. hadn't listened to this album since 2004 and feel like a lot of the dynamic range that exists on his other albums where these hits came from is missing. It's kind of one note because it's just one after another, after another of kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I feel like his music in general is the antithesis of radio country. And that's what's helped him stand out in radio country. When his music comes on the radio here in San Antonio on one of the two major country stations, it doesn't sound like Luke Bryan. It doesn't sound like Tim McGraw. It doesn't sound like Garth Brooks. It's George Strait, And he is who he is and he's his own thing. Um, I think there's something about George Strait's music that feels like home to me. It made places like Lubyansky's feed store in Adkins, Texas famous Hondo's on main in Fredericksburg, the Lukenbach dance hall and post office and green dance hall. I, I feel like this album as a whole maybe isn't my favorite, but I respect the artistry that has come of it and the music that it represents at those smaller dirt road places on the map in Texas. Uh, at the end of the day, I have to look at it and go, this is a guy who's had 40 years of unparalleled success, unparalleled hits. And the compilation as a whole is probably a four out of six experience. It's serviceable. It's good. But I know that the artist who's playing it, the guy who's behind it is a six out of six guy. 
And so with that kind of said, I'm going to say long live the King and I hope he makes more music. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, even if this album was not, uh, a super accurate representation of his music, I'm going to definitely try and look up what some of his like, like what more successful albums are. Cause I was, I was talking with, uh, my buddy, Justin, mm-hmm. uh, we got together and had practice and I was telling him that we were going to do this album and he got real excited because, George Strait is the reason he picked up a guitar and started learning to play. And in addition to enjoying some of George Strait's music, I love writing and playing with Justin. And mm-hmm. so I'm not, I'm not going to like just rate this like, ah, oh, three out of six strings, never again. Like I'm going to keep those songs on my phone. And I think I'm going to try and find some, uh, some more George Strait to get into just maybe not all of his super cheesy ballads. That's totally fair. So tell me, in the in light of cheesy ballads, did you have a favorite track or least favorite track? So I did. I my favorite track uh, is kind of a toss up between "Am I Blue," which is very much a Western swing, two step mm-hmm. sort of affair, or "Easy Come, Easy Go." Uh, I really loved "Easy Come, Easy Go" because it kind of had like faux island energy, mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the guitar part. It reminded me a little bit of. Um, Jimmy Buffett a mm-hmm. little bit, but the thing about that song that sticks with me is like the easy come, easy go tag at the end of the chorus. And George Strait is real good at writing choruses. Like if there was a part of his music that I enjoyed the most, it would be that I would to refresh myself in the mornings, you know, when I was like entering in my like data or whatever, I would kind of go through and listen to the beginning of the song and skip to a chorus. And more often than not, the thing that would save a song from getting a zero would be the chorus because mm-hmm. he is a great songwriter and he writes great melodies and his choruses are hooky. When I like the songs, like, man, they stick with me. Well, and I think I want to do something. I, I, f- I would not be doing service to the people who have supported George Strait over the years if I didn't point out that he really doesn't write a whole lot of his music or a whole lot of his lyrics. He has a lot of writing partners. If you go look at the, the bylines on yeah. his albums, um, he's not, it, it's not like he's Dave Grohl or, you know, John Lennon. It's, it's him and a group of other people writing. And in a lot of cases he records tracks that other people have written for him. So he's good at selecting music is what I would say. Yeah, but I I think even even so, you have to know as a songwriter, um, I mean, collaborating with people is its own right, Mm -hmm. own art. So even if he's not writing all of these hooks and songs that I love, he knows how to pick the right ones. He knows his skill set as a singer. And he knows what will work for him. Uh huh. And so even if it's not him, like he has picked out some great tunes that I really enjoyed. Um, as far as tunes, I hated go. <laughs> I really hated. I hate everything that that's what this album opens with. And it bothered me so bad because for me, it's indicative of the self-pitying domestic squabble obsessed bent that a lot of like pop country can tend to have, you know, it's always about, about 
did, did my lady wrong or this unattainable lady doesn't like me. And I like that kind of energy in different stuff. If I'm being honest, like if I'm going to listen to that kind of thing, I want more angst and I want louder guitars, you know, or I want it to be like quieter and moodier and weirder. So that, that song for me, just like every time I would hear it just like grated against my ears and I would have to skip it. But so what about you? Was your favorite George Strait song on here or was it conspicuously absent? Uh, so for me, when I think of George Strait songs um, and kind of the ones that I've always loved, I, I've got to say, I, I know every word to every song on this album. Hey, Tiffany and I were, (laughs) Tiffany and I were driving to Fredericksburg and spending all that time in the car. And she and I were just, you know, windows down living, living the springtime life because the weather was great and belting these things out. So I love a lot of the songs on this album. Uh, In particular, I think I'm a pretty big fan of write this down, check yes or no, and she'll leave you with a smile. Uh, And then of course, who doesn't just scream at the top of their lungs every word to all my exes live in Texas? Uh, I was singing that out loud today at work as I listened to it because it's so good. It's the stuff he did I that I liked, I really liked. And the stuff he did that I disliked, I really so, disliked. But that song <laughs> is fantastic. And as I was preparing my notes for this section of tracks that I really, really love, I put another track in here. And I was flabbergasted to figure out that it wasn't on this album. And I swear that I had listened to it, but it's just my mind filling it in. Amarillo by Morning peaked at number four and society oh, sucks because of it. I did not know that that was a George Strait tune. It is totally. I, and I live in Lubbock. We're all, <laughs> all of us singing Amarillo by Morning. Like, yeah. that's so funny. So oh, it, what it an omission. It didn't make this list, but. Golly, it's number one in my heart. I'll tell you that much because I love that song. Okay. so good. Now I need to talk about my least favorite song. And earlier you alluded to the fact there's 51 tracks on this song. There is one single that had never been released before and it's the worst song on this album and it's I Hate Everything. Uh, Daily Double. Ding, 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 ding. I Hate Everything was released as a single and became number one because it was attached to this album. And so it was the single oh. from this album. So it's the number one that doesn't deserve number one and kind of is universally derided in country music circles. Like a lot of people hate really? this song. Oh, it's and, terrible. Well, Good. <laughs> so the the guy who wrote it and produced it um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna besmirch his name, but he's the guy who produces and writes most of Alan Jackson's music. And so there's a story uh. about how, uh, this guy recorded a demo of the album and took it and played it for Alan Jackson and said, Hey, what do you think about this song? And Alan Jackson says, Oh, that'd be a cool tune. I'd really like to record that. And the guy told Alan Jackson, well, pound sand, George Strait just recorded it. Oh man. <laughs> So, so there you go. Well, that is so funny. I don't hate everything, but I hate that song. Song's pretty terrible, but whatever. We can't. They can't all be winners, even on a greatest hits album. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, I think we've just about killed this one. 
What do you think? Yeah, uh, we'd better get good at saying goodbye because <laughs> we're almost done with this album. Uh, but before we ride off into the sunset, we need to find out what the Oracle has in store for us. You want to uh, consult the Oracle for us? I do. And this week we will be picking from your list and we'll probably end up with a triple album because I keep punishing you. No, I, I considered putting a yes, double album best of on there and <laughs> did not want to do that to you. Okay. Well, Cause I love prog rock, but I don't know how much you love prog rock. So, well, let me hit the button and see what it gives us. Here we go. Yeah. Let us know. Number 24, Chris, which from your list is 1975's Bob Dylan album, Blood on the Tracks. Hey, Bob Dylan. We're going to get crazy. Actually, this is probably his like most like mainstream sounding album (laughs) because I'm a tool. (laughs) Dude, I, I'm looking forward to it. Bob Dylan, even in his most mainstream, there's a reason why he's the only musician to ever win a Nobel Prize. Yeah, this will be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. All right, Chris. Well, it was great getting to talk to you this week. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs>